morning, everybody. We are, um, the, our family is, is back from spring break. Um, and Luke, I know everybody knows who Luke is, has his tonsils coming out on Wednesday. So he had a COVID test yesterday, which is now like required for anything surgical. So he's quarantined and with Holly and, and Abby to be his friend for the next few days. Um, so they're not here with us, but um, thank you. Thanks for, for coming to worship. We're going to jump right into our text reading from Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. So if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, which says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seen in. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, we can have a conversation. You can just raise your hand. I want the boys and girls to participate in this little talk here. I'm wondering how many of you in the room are animal people, like you would consider yourself an animal lover. Raise, raise your hand. Come on. All right, very good, very, very good. Uh, Is anybody just completely indifferent to animals? Like, I'm glad they're here, I like to eat meat, but otherwise, whatever. Anybody classify that? Okay, in the back. Does anybody, like, terrified of anything living other than a human being? Anybody like that? Okay, very good. I am a huge animal person. I I love animals. Um, Not wild animals, like, not going to go to Africa, on a safari, not not wild animals, but like domesticated animals, like dogs, cats, um, goats, cows. Like when we go to the zoo, I'm like, oh, giraffes, that's cool. But there's a petting zoo back here where you can touch cows and goats. That's what I really love. Like I love those those kinds of animals. So it probably won't surprise you that I also like the TV shows about animals, right? So how many of you have watched uh, All Creatures Great and Small on PBS? Is anybody watching this? Isn't it great? I love that show. If you're missing out, if you're not watching this show, um, I watched The Incredible Dr. Pole. Did y'all know this show? Yes, very good. I love Dr. Pole. He's, he's, a, he's a vet in rural Michigan, and so he doesn't just have dogs and cats that come into his office. He actually spends half his time out into the fields working with cattle and emu and things like that, things that that people heard. What I really like about that show, that one in particular, and this is also true about great and small, but is is the relationship that people have with their animals on the farm, with their farm animals. It's really fascinating to me. Some of the people, and Dr. Paul in particular, they they name their cattle. Uh, They name their goats. It doesn't matter how many they may have of them. Many of them have names. Owners know their cattle so well. They know they have personalities. They know when something's right. They know when something's wrong. They talk about their their farm animals like they're pets. Um, 
it's fascinating to me. And what's also fascinating is when the time comes when that animal best serves the family dead, there's closure, but there's not a lot of mourning. Uh, all, underneath all of the affection and all of the affinity that a family might have for that work animal, the ultimate understanding is that that animal serves a purpose, and that purpose is for the provision of the family. In other words, the family knows that for all the things that they love about having this animal around, that animal exists to give its life for the owners of that family, right? I bring all this up because if we want to understand the text that we just read, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, and if we, if we want to understand who Jesus is and what he's done, if we want to understand what church is all about even, we have to understand something about bulls and goats. Specifically bulls and goats and their relationship to the people who owned them in Old Testament times. Now we're going to be all over our Bibles today. We're going to be in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Leviticus 16, and we'll end up here in Hebrews chapter 10 here at the end. But let me set a baseline uh, uh, if you want, I want to pour a law, it's a big foundation, but the house is going to go up fast. So I want to be, let me pour a foundation for you for this text in Hebrews 10. Now I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So you know the story, hopefully, of Genesis 3 where, where Adam and Eve have been created by God and they are in a perfect relationship with God and they're walking in the garden in a relationship with God, talking and conversing with God. And then Adam and Eve both believe the serpent's lies about God. They They take from the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they eat it, and instantly their eyes are opened, and rather than wanting to be uh, honest and open and in a relationship with God, they now have fear in their life, they have shame in their life, and they shelter themselves from one another by sewing clothes together, and they, and, they, and they run from God. God comes into the garden, and what is it that God treasures and values the most? It's the relationship with His people, and He comes into the garden, and He says, where are you, where are you? They are hiding from God, and God is pursuing a relationship with them in full knowledge of what they have done, and in full knowledge how it's all come to be, and in full knowledge, God is still in pursuit of a relationship with them. Fast forward uh, through Genesis, um, where they are banned from the Garden of Eden, and they're banned in their relationship with God. Cain and Abel, Cain, there's, a, there's a murderous plot between brothers there, and then Fast forward all the way into Genesis chapter 6 where the sin has become so rampant in the earth that God has decided to start all over and he chooses one family, Noah, and destroys the rest of the earth through a flood, but he saves this one family to start over again. Um, and when the earth is restored and Noah begins to repopulate the earth, he and his children do, um, what, what happens? We, we have a people who come together in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. They say, you know what would be great is if we were as great as God. And we would demonstrate our greatness um, by building this tower. And God says, hey, here we are again. People who are far more interested in being great rather than worshiping the one who has made them and who is truly great. And so God spreads them out all over the earth by confusing their language. And you think, how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? How is God ever going to be in a, in a relationship with His creation again? And that takes us to Genesis chapter 12. Would you go in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1? I want you to read this with me. God chooses a man, a Persian, 
an Iranian, living in the land of Ur. And he decides, God decides that he, no matter what, is going to have a relationship with his creation. Start, and it goes to this man. Look what he says in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. He says, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. He's talking to a man named Abram. And I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That is God's promise, God's covenant, God's blessing on a single man named Abram and his ancestors. Now turn three chapters over to chapter 15 where Abram and God are in a conversation about how this is actually going to take place. Look at verses 8 through 18. So Genesis 15, 8 through 18. Abram said to God, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess this land? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so he brought all these things to him, And he cut them in half, and he laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Who's speaking? The Lord. Abram, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good age. And in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Here's the part that I want you to see. When the sun set... And it was dark. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which is symbolic for the presence of God, appeared. And what did it do? It passed between the divided animals. And on that day, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So here's what I want you to see. God is making a promise to Abram that God would restore a divine blessing to the nations through Abram's offspring. What I want you to understand is that at this point, God is obligating himself. He's obligating himself to not destroy his people when they've sinned against him. He's obligated himself to keep his promise. He's obligated himself to fulfill this blessing. He's going to keep his relationship with his people. So go back to Genesis 3 and go here to Genesis 15. You have God's people who are sinful and corrupt. And we're going to keep on being sinning and corrupt because we can't help ourselves. And then you have God who is holy and incorruptible. And yet He has promised to be with us even in our sinfulness and in our corruption. That's the dilemma. That's where we are. That's the situation. So you've got God's people who are sinful corrupt. You've got God who is holy and perfect. And so if, if, they're going to, if we're going to live together, if we're going to be in a relationship with God, then we need God. 
We need God to purify us. We need God to cleanse us so that God's promise to us can be realized. We're sinful and corrupt. He isn't, but he's promised to be with us. So if we're going to live together, we need him to do something on our behalf so that we can be in a relationship with him. We need God to do something. And so God initiates through the law a ritual system that through its symbolic actions will let us turn away from our sin. It will let us provide payment for our sin. It will provide a way to cleanse and justify the community before God. It will ensure that God will stay present with all of us, which brings us to how did they do that? Well, turn to Leviticus chapter 16 in your Bibles. Leviticus. When's the last time you heard a passage on Leviticus? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So Leviticus 16, you can read all about this symbolic ritual. But let me just hit the highlights for you, okay? There's a high priest named Aaron. And you can see right in the beginning of chapter 16, um, Aaron's, two of Aaron's sons got, so, got too close, too careless to the tabernacle, and they died. So, but Aaron is the high priest. It is his job to represent the people to, to God in the, in the temple. So how would he do this? So the Lord says, Aaron, this is what I want you to do. You're, as a representation of the people, I want you to take a bull, and I want you to take two goats. And he would take the bull, a bull, and he would kill the bull there, right outside the, the tabernacle. And he would uh, capture some of the blood, and he would go into the holiest of holies one time a year. He'd go very deep, into the, right into the center of the Holy of Holies, and there would be the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments were, would have been kept. And on top, there's this seat. It's called the Mercy Seat. And he would take this blood and he would walk in and he would sprinkle some of the blood on the east side. And then he would walk over here and he would actually put some of the blood on the actual seat, on the Mercy Seat of the tabernacle. And then he would come back out. And the reason he did a bull, he was required to kill a bull, that was for his sin and for his family's sin, which, which God accepted symbolically accepted that death of that animal as payment for Aaron's sin, which made him be able to approach and come in. And he would come out, and they would take one of these two goats. He'd take one of these goats, and he would kill that goat, and he would take some of the blood, and he would walk back in, and he would sprinkle some of that goat's blood on the east side of the altar, and then he would go to the mercy seat, and he'd sprinkle some of that blood. And that blood wasn't payment for Aaron. It wasn't payment for his family. It was payment for all of God's people who were outside while he was inside doing this. He cut, he killed the goat right in front of him. He took their blood, but he walked in. They didn't go in. He walked in behind this curtain into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled the blood, and it was payment, not for him, but it was payment for all the sin for all the people who were outside. Then Aaron would come back out, and he would lay hands on a second goat. He'd put his hands on his head, and he would start to pray, and he would start to confess, and he would tell every sin that he could think of that all the people had committed in all of the nation of Israel, which probably took a while, or maybe it didn't. But that's what he did. He put his hands on his head, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He confessed, and he confessed, and he confessed. And then a gentleman who was dressed in pure linen clothing would take this goat by a rope and he would walk out of the city, out into an uninhabitable place, out into the wilderness where no one could live and no one could survive. 
And he would leave the goat there. And then he would make his way back to a city. And he would come, before he got to the city, he would take off his clothes, his pure clothes, and he would burn them. He'd bathe and he'd put his other plain clothes back on before he'd go back in. So you see what's happening in this ceremony here. The, the sin of the people is paid for by the blood of a spotless lamb. And the forgiveness is executed when they confess their sin and put it on this one goat and it leaves and never comes back. Every year, the seventh month, the tenth day, every year. Why? Because in this ritual, in this symbolic ritual, the people would be prompted to turn away from their sin. Killing an animal exposes the ugliness of your sin and it exposes the holiness of God and it exposes the cost associated with it. And so that in doing so, God would, God's, dream, God's hope is that they would, he would, they would see this and, be, and then would go, I'm not going to sin again because I see what it costs. And this, this ceremony would provide just payment for the hard cost of that debt. It would provide a way to cleanse and purify the community from the infectious nature of their sin. It would ensure that God would then stay present with His people. And this substitute was not offered by humans hoping to appease a volatile and angry deity. That's what was taking place in other cultures surrounding God's people. God is volatile, God is angry, and He's not going to accept me unless I appease Him through some sort of sacrifice that I bring to Him. That is not what is taking place. God is the one here providing the substitute. These are God's creatures. And remember, God has obligated Himself to be uh, with us through His covenant with Abraham. God has obligated Himself to love us. God has obligated Himself to be with us. So He creates the system of the law. He creates the substitute. He provides the substitute. So these sacrifices are showing Israel how much God wanted to be in a relationship with His people. Do you see that? This isn't something that a bunch of Jews created. We'll just appease God this way. No, this is God's provision. This is God's ritual. This is God's symbol of showing how much He cares. He provides. But as we learned in our Sunday school lesson this morning, none of it was actually paying the debt for our sin. It was all a ritual pointing to this moment in history in which God would provide the perfect priest and God would provide the perfect sacrifice who would sacrifice His own blood on the mercy seat. And He would quite literally take the sin of all mankind and He would quite literally remove it from us as far as the east is from the west. And He would actually pay the debt for our sin. And it would actually be an expression of God being just and God being gracious at the same time and for all time. It was pointing to Jesus. And because Jesus has now done what He has done, which takes us to Hebrews chapter 10... Our relationship with God is radically changed for the better. And it has very practical implications for our lives today. And I want to show you too. Look at Hebrews 10 verses 19 and verse 22. Verse 19 and verse 22. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, and then skip down to verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. First thing I want you to see is that when it comes to being in the presence of God, is that you and I, because of the work of Jesus, 
we can enter with confidence. I mean confidence. Notice the difference in the way that we can approach God compared to the way Aaron could in Leviticus 16. The author of Hebrews says that we can come to God confidently and that we can come to God joyfully. Aaron went in tentatively and fearfully. His boys died outside that door. We are urged always to draw near by the author of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, they were told to keep their distance. We get to go near. Only the high priest could enter the holiest of all. And even then, he could only do it a day and a year. And here, Hebrews says, all Christians are urged to come in at any moment in our trials and full assurance of being acceptance and heard. Anytime. But the word boldness is what I want you to understand. You know what it's like um, being in a meeting uh, where you're having a, a conversation. Maybe it's professional. Maybe it's family. And there's this, you know, huge gorilla in the corner that nobody's talking about. Or an elephant. Maybe it's an elephant. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where you go in there and it's like there's this thing that everybody should be talking about, but nobody's talking about because they're afraid of talking about it. And it's just super awkward. Has that ever happened to anybody in this room? Please. Okay, good. Just making sure. We're getting ready to have one of those moments if you hadn't. Um, so I'm really glad that you have. It's that, it's that weird, awkward uh, time where there's this thing that you're supposed to be talking about, but nobody else is talking about. Um, it's kind of like having a... Um, imagine having a boss or, or leaders above you in work who are, who are really insecure, and um, they only surround themselves with people who will tell them what they want to hear. And because that's the truth, you can't tell them the truth. Like, you can't actually speak frankly. You can't speak confidently to them. That's what that word is getting at in the, in the Greek here in Hebrews chapter, nine, chapter 10, verse 19. Since then, we have boldness. It's not about attitude, like, I'm busting up in here. It's not that. It's, I can come in here, and I can confidently speak my mind and open up my heart to you because who Jesus is and what he has done. I don't have to have any fear of how you're going to respond to me because the sacrifice has been made and the curtain is torn and I can come in here any time I want. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. Um, several years ago, um, I came into a, just a little bit of money. It was like three or $4,000, like 10, 10 years ago, that I wasn't expecting to get. And um, so I bought, please don't make fun of me, I bought two... I bought a seat, two, a seat license for, for two seats at the Dallas Cowboys Stadium in Dallas, Texas. Okay? It was, it was three dollars $4,000 at the time. It's, it's an astronomical amount of money, I'm sure now. But that's what it was. There were still seats left. I spent three $4,000. And when I bought that, they, uh, they gave me tickets for like the last couple of games that year with, with that thing. I was like, oh, great. And she said, I'll throw in, you know, she's a sales lady, you know. She said, I'll throw in um, access to the, to the, um, the Miller Light Club in the bottom. Uh, down, it's it's in, in, in the stadium. And you can actually see the Cowboys run out of the locker room before they, they come on the field. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Okay, so we did. We went to the game. And it was Trey, it was a year, Trey or John, which one? It was, it was both of you. That's right. That's right. Okay, so we all, we all go. We've got our seats. And, um, and we, we get the seats and we, and we go down to the bottom to the field. 
and, and, uh, and, and we have these huge badges. Like, there's like half of a sheet of paper, and they say Miller Light on them right there. And we go down into the thing, and we hold up like, like she couldn't see it. You know, like we hold it up, and we go down in the thing. And sure enough, there's this, there's this you know, bar, and it's you know, packed with rich people. And it just, you just feel super, super special. And you go all the way into the, and there's the tunnel and the Cowboys are going by and the coaches are going by and it's the most incredible. And I got in there and I didn't feel awkward. I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't feel like I wasn't supposed to be in there because I had the Miller Lite badge right there. I had paid for it. I'd gotten it from the sales lady. I'm sure I paid for it somehow or another. I was there. That's confidence. That's, I belong here. Y'all, Jesus paid the price. Get in there. You've got confidence. You can speak your mind. You can be frank. You can be bold because the price has been paid. Lastly, go with confidence. And I say this because I, I don't want you to think boldness doesn't mean, it. go with sincerity. Boldness doesn't mean brash. It means confidence. So go and go with sincerity. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. There's no mention of behavior. There's no mention of rules. It's not that. It's not presentation. It's your heart. It's your conscience. It's your self, your bodies. So think about this. Back, go back to Old Testament times. Go back to Leviticus 16. Aaron and the serving priest after them had to wash themselves thoroughly and only then could he enter the holy place. It wasn't just the blood. Like he had to go through this bathing ritual. He had on these pure linen you know, clothes and the whole thing. He would put on this clothing for the ritual. And when he got done with all that, he would have to burn those clothes. The same thing was true for the, for the individual who took the scapegoat out into the wilderness, as I told you about. And look what the text says. Let us draw near with a full heart, with a heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. What's that a reference to? What was sprinkling in Leviticus 16? The blood, right? From an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So it's, it's a reference back to the ritual of cleansing with the water and the blood. Our bodies washed in pure water. So you see, the ritual, the symbol of doing all that cleanness that only let you get uh, close with, with, there's tension and there's anxiety, there's tentativeness, there's, there's fearfulness. No, here, it's about my heart. It's not about the outside. It's about the inside. It's not about my my look, it's not about the symbol, it's not about the ritual, it's not about the practice, it's about my heart, it's about the conscience. Whereas I was going through, if I was Aaron, I was going all through all these outside external things in order to make myself right with God. All of that, if I'm Aaron, I have to know, I have to know that it's just a picture, that it's just a symbol, that it's just a shadow of something that's actually going to change me, that's actually going to make me right before God in my heart, in my conscience, not just on the outside so that I look like to the world that I'm pure. So we go not out of ritual, not out of symbol, not out of presentation. We go in confidence, in sincerity, because Jesus' death accomplished what all the ritual and symbolic symbolism pointed to. It actually accomplished it. So we go not out of 
habit, not out of practice. We, we go, not out of tradition. We go in out of sincerity because it's about our heart, not about the outside. Christians don't place their confidence in external ritual. I have no hope of being right with God because I grew up Southern Baptist. I, I put my confidence in a confession of Christ who actually paid the debt and removed my sin. So that when I come into God's presence, I'm not concerned about the external. I'm concerned about my heart. And heart work is sincere work. It is really easy to do the superficial work on the exterior. It's, it's compared to actually doing the heart work, the sincere work. Um, I want you to imagine, if you will, having to get ready for something special like a job interview. Um, and so imagine what this would be like. So you, you've got a, a really big opportunity. You're going to be the vice president of some widget macking factory. And you're, I mean, it's going to be a really, really big, big deal. And you wake up in the morning and you realize that you now only have 15 minutes to get ready instead of an hour and a half to get ready um, because you overslept. It's terrifying, isn't it? Big day, on your, big day in your life like that, so much riding on you. And so what do you do in 15 minutes to get ready that you hope will make you look good, good enough? What are you leaving on the floor that you would do in that hour and a half? Well, I'm not leaving coffee. I got to make coffee. <laughs> There's that. So I'm not brushing my hair or my teeth. I don't know, whatever it is for you, I don't I'm just, maybe I'm testifying personally, but I, you know, think through that. Like, there, there are things that we, we put on the, we put value on the outside. We put value on the outside. We, we want, the external is so important for so many things. And when it, but when it comes to the Lord, when it comes to the Lord, what really matters is the heart work. So we can enter, not just with confidence, but when we enter, we go with sincerity. The fact that Jesus is given access does not mean that we go in brashly or indifferently to the holiness of God or the love of God. When someone is that holy and that loving, we take it very seriously. Right? We take it very seriously. So go, go, go with God. Go in there confidently, but go knowing that there's going to be heart work and it's not just going to be about the outside. Go, go with sincerity. So brothers and sisters, I would just invite you this morning to those two things. Get in there. Get in there. Jesus has paved the way to be with the holy and loving, a just and grace God, the one who made you, and he obligated himself to you. And then he did all the things, the only thing that could be done for that relationship to work. So I just urge you, believe and get in there and go with sincerity and do the heart work. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for this word this week. Oh, um, thank you for the time in Sunday school talking about your atoning work. You created this system, not us. You created this shadow to point to the day where Jesus would take care of this once and for all. And we're so, so grateful to be on this side of that story and know that, that the payment for sin has been, it's been paid. It's been paid. And so we can come into your presence confidently speaking our mind boldly and frankly. 
laying our troubles, laying our enthusiasm, laying our excitement, laying our woes, weighing, bringing you our anger, whatever it is, we can just we can share it and know that you accept us on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done. And we know that when we come in there, it's going to be heart work. It's going to be about the heart. It's going to be about the conscience. It is not going to be about the outside. It's going to be about the inside. So we pray, Lord, that we would just, we wouldn't live the Christian life, that we would actually enter in with confidence and sincerity and live the gospel life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.